The Holy Spirit has given our community a very special gift this year, namely a foundational understanding of the theology of reconciliation. We have a biblically-based understanding now of reconciliation and a definition that we've created that we're working with that I want to revisit. We've touched this each time we've gathered. So um, reconciliation, a series of actions that does three things. Removes hostility in a relationship. Number two, repairs the damage that hostility caused. And number three, restores God-intended unity. So if you remember the first teaching back in January, Amy talked about unity. She's, she began with the goal. This is the goal of reconciliation is unity. We also talked about hostility, that hostility was the problem, which is actually interesting because there's a lot of other things you could think of that are important to address in reconciliation. But the core problem is hostility, anger, contempt, things like that. Then we went into a series in the early summer uh, focusing on this idea of interrelationship. What are the relationships that hostility develops in? And we identified three arenas of hostility, which of course then become the arenas of reconciliation. Anybody remember what those three are? God, marriages, and other people. Man to God, very good. If I had a little, little candy, I'd throw it your way. <laughs> Reward the class. God and man, man and wife, brother to brother. Exactly. And then we expanded brother to brother to say, brother to brother is more than just individual. You know, me and Philip. Or Lynn and Bree. It also involves groups and cultures and races and denominations. Those are in the brother to brother arena. And that's shown in Ephesians 2. So that's where we've been. Today we're going to look at, let's see if I can focus on this part, which we haven't touched yet, a series of actions. What are the actions? That's the, that's the goal today. So we finally arrived at this part of the definition, the very first part. Hallelujah. What do we actually do? So I'm excited about today's teaching because it will give us things that we can commit ourselves to as a community. Okay, first of all, if there are actions, we have to ask ourselves the question, who is acting? It's an important question. We have seen in the year that we've been in this place, which by the way, today marks exactly one year, which is kind of cool. I don't know if y'all remember, but August 15th, Friday, August 15th was the first Friday night prayer meeting. We had air conditioning, kind of. We had floors and we had one toilet and that was enough to have a prayer meeting. And so we had a prayer meeting August 15th on Friday and our family moved in the next day. And so it's been exactly one year. Now, is that a coincidence? As they say, coincidence? I think not. So pretty cool. Okay, in the last year, one of the things we've seen is the wisdom and the importance of the name God gave us for this place, Christ the reconciler. So Christ is the primary actor in reconciliation. God works in reconciliation. So when we talk about a series of actions, we're talking about actions that God 
does. He does real things. This is the kind of God we have. He not only cares, not only sees, but he actually acts. This is beautiful. So primarily in his life, death, and resurrection, Christ engaged in a series of actions that led to our reconciliation. So this definition is the gospel. It's one way to state the gospel. So these actions are recorded in scriptures. What did Jesus do? And they serve as a model for our actions of reconciliation. So one of the things I want to encourage you is look to Jesus. Watch what he did. Learn from what he did. He was the best at it. And he's worthy of our thanksgiving, of all thanksgiving, because of his actions for reconciliation. But he's also active today in the arenas of reconciliation. God is at work. Jesus is at work. In fact, he's still the primary actor. Without him, there is no reconciliation. Now, second important question, does this absolve us of responsibility? Do we sit back and say, okay, it's God who does the reconciliation, so make it happen. I'm waiting. And the answer is no, of course. By no means, as Paul would say. Jesus calls us to the ministry of reconciliation. He invites us to be his apprentices, to learn from him. He actually wants us to join him. So this is a mystery. I'm going to try to state it simply, but it's a mystery, so you can't. So, so God is always acting. He's always acting. So when we enter into an, a series of actions that are leading towards reconciliation, as Steve Hawthorne says, we're late to the party. He's been there for a while, setting the table, greeting the guests. The party's already going. But somehow it doesn't really get started till we come. The fact that we're late to the party doesn't mean we don't need to go to the party. If we don't act, reconciliation is not completed. If we are passive, hostility wins the day. If we are passive, hostility wins the day. So that is today's topic, the actions of reconciliation. Now, will we present you a formula? Follow these 10 steps and your life will be different. No, we will talk about specific steps, but please don't take it in a formulistic, formulaic way. Reconciliation, now we talked about the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit's also involved in reconciliation. And so the Holy Spirit needs to lead the process of reconciliation. The series of actions will actually be different in every case. It will have common components, so we'll talk about those common components today. Recognizable similarities. None of the biblical examples, we're going to cover a lot of biblical examples today, none of them have all of the actions that we talked about. So if you're looking for a formula in the Bible, you're not going to find it. But you will find a common thread. Okay? So the actual events will always be unique when we practice reconciliation and should always be spirit-led. If these actions are spirit-led, they are also flesh-resisted. Reconciliation is really hard. The actions I, we're going to talk about today are hard. 
particularly getting the ball rolling is hard. I'm engaged right now in, in uh, an arena of reconciliation and just, I'll, I don't want to do it. I want to do anything else. I'm going to go to other places. I want to, you know, whatever. Work on this teaching. <laughs> but, I'm, you know, I'm forcing myself, okay, we've got to get the ball rolling on this. So it's hard to do. I'm not good at it. Don't take us as the masters presenting what we've done a thousand times. We are learning together from Jesus. Okay? Now, because it's hard, you'll be tempted to not do it until you can do it perfectly. I want to ask you to resist, ask us to resist that temptation. It's better to get into it and do it imperfectly than wait until you have the perfect words to say or exactly the right opportunity. Because what will happen is it will never come. It will never come. Don't wait. Only Jesus has a perfect ministry of reconciliation. If you take a risk and jump in the waters, you'll find that he'll actually help you walk on top of them. He'll meet you with grace. So we are to be a people, a community here, committed to the actions of reconciliation. And that was one thing I presented on Monday night. What does it mean to be a member of the Christ to Reconciler community? Well, one thing it means is we're committed to the actions of reconciliation. Okay, as a final matter of introduction, we'll be talking not only about actions, but also about attitudes. Now, actions will be front and center because actions are bodily, they're physical. You, you kind of know if you've done it. <laughs> actions are concrete. They're easier to identify. They're risky. You feel the risk of an action. It's, risk is just an essential element of reconciliation. It is possible to think reconciliatory thoughts without risking anything. It is not possible to take reconciliatory actions without risking anything. You're always risking. That's why it's hard to do. But actions which are not accompanied or motivated by the right attitudes can be fruitless. If you're just doing the action, and you, your attitude is completely wrong, it's not it's not the right place to be. It can even make a situation worse. So, number one, understand that by an attitude, we're not talking about emotions, how you feel about it. We're talking about a choice of the will. It's a mindset that is chosen, your attitude about it. Now, these attitudes come from the way we think, and they're developed over time. It's not an instantaneous turn-on, turn-off sort of thing. They're the fruit of our spiritual formation, our attitudes. The right attitude was crucial in Christ's work of reconciliation. For this reason, we have chosen the image of the cross as the foundational image for Christ the Reconciler. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So the central act of God regarding reconciliation is the physical death of Jesus on the cross. 
That was an action. That was a bodily action. The actions of reconciliation that we present today, we're going to superimpose them on the cross. It's important that it's a cross. You cannot be self-protective, holding on to your own life, and also be a minister of reconciliation. You have to lose your life to find it. So that's the introduction. Now I have some handouts that have the picture of the cross that you can write on. Who likes to write as they go? Because I have blank ones. And then who likes to be given the answer before they take the test? Because I have some that already have them on it. Okay, so Mark. Mark, hand out to anyone. It is not a logo, but it is a foundational image. I'll say that. All right, ready for the first action. The first action is Jesus. We start with Jesus. Now, wait a minute. I thought these were the actions of reconciliation. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the first action of reconciliation? That's a noun. Well, first of all, Jesus was God's action of reconciliation. He embodied it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. Also, reconciliation, while it can happen without invoking Jesus explicitly, so you see examples in the world of reconciliation that don't name the name of Jesus, I don't recommend it. In our midst, we're committed to founding our reconciliation in what Jesus has taught us. And my suspicion is in those places where reconciliation works, yet his name is not named, he's at work anyway. That's my suspicion. He does reconciliation. How do you perform the Jesus action as you consider areas where you are being called as a reconciler? So it can be very simple. It can also be very complex. Let me give you an example of simple. Say a prayer before you begin the process of reconciliation. Invite Christ the reconciler to be present to be active, to be leading, to be guiding. As George Miley says in his teaching on reconciliation, we invite Jesus into our midst. Now, here's a more complex version of the same thing. Devote yourself to become an apprentice of reconciliation. Jesus is the master reconciler. Nobody knows how to do it like him. So you can learn from him all of your life becoming more and more like him and increasingly able to join him in reconciliation. So George Miley, after saying, we invite Jesus to be in our midst, says, we submit to him and study his teaching. He spoke the most reliable information ever about how life can be lived successfully. Only he can heal the deep, far-reaching wounds of history. Let's look at a biblical example of of this action of reconciliation. So I need a reader. Read. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. They said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. 
Then Jacob prayed, You have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. <laughs> then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So I learned to really, really love this story this week. Um, saw it in a completely new light. So why was Jacob afraid of Esau? It just, I mean, this, we're reviewing the story. It's important. Why was Jacob afraid of Esau? He stole his birthright. Last time, last time he saw Esau, what did Esau say? I want to kill you. I mean, that's the last time they saw each other. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Why does Esau want to kill Jacob? Because Jacob, okay, what do you know about Jacob and Esau? Twins. They're twins. What does the name Jacob mean? Usurper. Usurper is a planter. Why? Because he stole the blessing and the birthright. He did that, but Rebecca didn't know that. Right? <laughs> yes, he did. It's true. He was the second born, and he was grabbing his heel. There was always strife. There was strife between Esau and Jacob in the womb. Rebecca, Rebecca realized something was unusual. She had never been pregnant before, but she, she inquired of the Lord, what is going on? The Lord said, you have two great nations in your womb. And they were struggling. So Jacob, Jacob runs away from Esau. He lives with Laban for many years, um, probably a couple of decades, about 20 years probably. And he becomes rich, he has wives, he has children, and then he has hostility with Laban. It's not comfortable to live there anymore. And in his uncomfortableness, the Lord comes to him and says, go back, go back home. But Jacob's afraid. And so this is why he's afraid, he's going back home and he hears reports, Esau's coming with 400 men. This makes him nervous. <laughs> so he breaks, up, he breaks up his family thinking, okay, well, some of them can survive if I break them up and they can run. And then he wrestles with God. And he wrestles with this angel of the Lord. I'm, I'm, not, I, I, I am, I'm not going to suggest anything about this angel of the Lord. He has an encounter with an angel of the Lord and, um, and what does he say? He wrestles all night before he meets Esau. And what does he say to the angel? I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And how, what is the blessing he receives? The new name. Now, interesting. What was his old name? Yeah. What's his new name? One who strives with God. One, he went from one who strives with man 
to one who strives with God. It's his, it's his new name. It's his new name. He has an identity given by God. He has an identity in relationship with God. His identity is not in relationship with Esau anymore. His identity is in relationship with God. And what happens? Well, just saying, Thomas said, God's been at work in Esau too. Esau is now a rich man. He's rich like Isaac. He's rich like Jacob. Something's been going on with Esau. Jacob doesn't know this. But Jacob's had this encounter with the Lord. He knows he has an identity with God. And what happens when they meet? Oh, sorry. It's a long passage. We didn't write it all down. Jacob goes before him. He prostrates himself seven times. And then, you want to put a, then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. And fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And there is no more recorded hostility between Jacob and Esau. There are still two great nations. Those nations have issues. <laughs> but there was no more hostility between those brothers recorded in the Bible. So here's what I want to suggest to you. When we know where we stand with God, we are people who can be ministers of reconciliation. But when our identity lies in the conflict with our brothers or sisters, we are not on solid ground. We, we cannot be reconciled. If you want to be reconciled with somebody who you feel looks down on you and you're angry because they don't respect you, you're not on solid ground. It's not a safe place, probably not a productive place to, to um, be a minister of reconciliation. But if we really believe that Jesus loves us, he gives us his name, we have, we have an assurity of life in the unity of the Trinity, we have a source of security, we have a place we can stand. Mm -hmm. And that place you can humble yourself, you can ask for forgiveness where you're needed because your identity is not based on being right, your identity is not based upon being honored, your identity is based on God's love. When we have our identity based in Jesus, we are not easily offended. And that is crucial for ministers of reconciliation. In fact, I'm going to go off on a little soapbox I've always wanted to do after lunch. About <laughs> do not be easily offended. Jesus was not easily offended. Jesus was misunderstood, he was mocked, he was disregarded, he was beaten, he was slandered, but he was not easily offended, and that's a good thing because he could call down fire from heaven. Okay. <laughs> it is a good thing for us to not easily be offended. So I suggest with you, and, and here I'm going to just take a little break, practical application. Is there a relationship of hostility where you where you feel identified by your relationship with this person, by disrespect, by dishonor, by um, strife. And what would it look like if you were to be secure in your identity in Jesus? How would that change this relationship? I'd like you to think about that. You can write as a question. We might come back to that. And then, if you really don't know what it's like to be secure in the love of God, I suggest you spend time with Rose Watson. <laughs> so this, Jesus as the first action, is a deep, deep, deep topic. We could spend the next year exploring this. What does it mean? How do we come to this place of security in Christ? And it's exactly what is written in Ephesians 2, 
about the one new man is that God removed the hostility by reconciling both to God, the Jew and the Gentile. He reconciled both to himself, and that removed the hostility between them. So a key part of reconciliation, the first movement, is a reconciliation with God, which is what Amy was just saying. Okay, number two, action number two. Go. That's the action. Go. A biblical example, and I'm going to need, it would be wonderful to have Bree read all of them, but number one, she's not here. And number two, it would be good to hear other voices. So do we have another reader? When Sophias came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to suffice in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. All right. Group discussion. What was done right and well in this story in regards to the action of reconciliation that is go? What could have been done better? So just thoughts. He went. He went. It's <laughs> good. He confronted. Yeah. yeah. He was honest. Excellent. It was in front of everyone. Right? It was in front of everything. Is this a good or a bad or that both? Is needs improvement. Needs improvement. Needs improvement. So we're not going to do a lab of reconciliation here in front of everyone. <laughs> Mark, let's go at it. <laughs> That's right. In fact, Jesus. You know, Paul is missing Jesus' words here, right? It says, if you have an offense or someone has committed a sin against you, a fellow disciple has committed a sin against you, go to them in private and confront them. Matthew 18, 15. What other things? Anything else jumped out at you in terms of this passage? Good examples of going, bad examples. Yes? He asked a question. He asked a question. Rather than... Oops, sorry. Yes. How is it then? I mean, it's it's a pointed question. <laughs> 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 response. Yeah, that's excellent. Yes, Lynn. He used the gospel as a standard to compare behavior to. Mm-hmm. Anything else? When Peter was the one who first received the vision, take and yes, eat. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that, I'm, I'm thinking how, you know, as Amy was just talking about who we are, you know, being secure in who we are. And Paul was definitely secure in who he was. <laughs> you know, being able, you know, to go to Peter and confront uh-huh. Peter in that yeah. way, I think, is a good example of 
Yeah. Asking to be speaker. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, Paul did confront Peter, but he never suggested anywhere that you should step down. Yeah. 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 No. In fact, this is a matter for discussion, I'm sure, but I heard one time that, okay, I'll say this is just a maybe evangelical free church leadership model. The more authority a leader has, if he's if he's the authority of 20 or the authority of 5,000, if there needs to be a correction, it needs to happen before the whole group. In other words, it could be done one-on-one, -on -one, but it eventually has right. to incorporate all those who follow in that authority. So in this sense, Peter may have realized that, or Paul may Paul. have realized that Peter can take it, and those listening need it. Yeah. Well, it's all of them that were doing it, right? The other Jews joined in. So, but I think a better model would have been for, and who knows, it might have been that this actually, Paul did go to Peter privately and wasn't well received, and so he took it public. We don't know. But I think in general, the, the best approach, even in that model, which I think is a good one, is you go in private, and once the person is willing, oh, okay, I was wrong, Okay, now, then you begin to tech, and we'll talk more about this later. What do you do at that point? Okay? Good. Go. So a few points about going. One is, as we've talked about earlier, it doesn't matter whether you're the committer of the offense or the committee of the offense. Either way, Jesus says go. Matthew 5, Matthew 18. So there's no, it doesn't, if you've been wrong, go. If you know you've wronged someone, go. Either way, you go. Okay? Now, do you go and go and go and go and go and go and go like the Energizer Bunny? <laughs> no, we have a responsibility to pursue reconciliation. We only take action insofar as it lies with us. We're not going to contravene another person's will. So we go as far as we can. Another thing I love about go is it involves relocation of your body. <laughs> or at least a phone call or an email or something, right? <laughs> but it involves relocating myself into the proximity of a person who holds hostility towards me. That's not natural. You don't usually go into a place where you're entering into something that's hostily directed towards you. It's supernatural. Reconciliation is supernatural. We can take courage, great courage, and never have an excuse not to go when we consider the incarnation. Jesus went into an arena of hostility towards him and his father. It didn't stop him. Amy, do you want to share some thoughts? So it, an attitude which enables us to go, I, and I think these are attitudes that um, fuel pretty much all of them, are humility and courage. We, we have to be humble people. We have to be courageous people. And that, in this story, I'd like to point out, you know, Paul, Paul had an important correction to make. Being ministers of reconciliation does not mean we are passive and let everything go. There are truths that are necessary for unity. There are things that have to be confronted. 
Because there, there are certain behaviors, there are certain teachings that will divide, and they have to be confronted. And anybody who has parented children knows this is the case, right? There are certain things you cannot let go on in your family. You have to, you have to put your foot down. You have to confront them. Um, and so, so I just like to say, you know, being ministers of reconciliation does not mean never rocking the boat. Sometimes you will rock the boat. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you, you will not always have a favorable response. But I'd like to point out Peter here. Because Paul, you know, Paul was right. He was brash, but Peter was humble. Peter changed. He received the rebuke. And that was pretty amazing. And so um, it, not only do we have to be people who go, we have to be people who receive. Yeah. And, and I will tell you the truth, there are times that I quake in my boots when I see people walking towards me. <laughs> or when the phone rings, like, oh no, I do not want to talk to this person. And so going is actually But receiving. she takes my call anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, so, so going can also be receiving. It's an act of humility. It's an act of courage. Um, and, and so, now here's, here's a disclaimer. There can be situations that are too volatile to address in person. There, I mean, there are situations that are violent, and, and you know, there are situations that are abusive. And, um, and it's not, you know, don't, don't take this teaching or Jesus' words as an excuse to put you or yourself or your family in harm's way. Be smart, be wise, seek the Holy Spirit. There are other ways to go. You can, um, you can. There are phone calls, emails, letters that you can always test the door, and and you can look for openings. You can offer an opening. You can always offer openings, um, but going does not mean, as Thomas said, it does not mean violating someone else's will. It means being willing to um, have a conversation, and you can communicate that willingness in other ways. So that's just my my. Um, my disclaimer, even Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He does not break down the door, right? So, okay, that's it. Yes, yeah, Dory. I was just going to say, along with what you said, Amy, there are times when there's either danger, there's danger or um, the person that we're going to appears to us to be irrational when this topic comes up. <laughs> and another thing that go is not only whether or not we go, but the kind of situations where we don't go Good. Good. For two reasons. One is safety. The other one is we might need a, a third-party witness to, to verify what was said. Good. So going private does not always mean go alone. Yeah. That's good. Thank you, Dor. All right. So we've got, and it's good to not go until you've got that grounding and the identity in Jesus rather than in the conflict. Third action. We're cheating. We've got three. Listen, lament, repent. Listen, lament, repent. Now, why did we put three actions all at the same level, so to speak? The reason is because the next action could be any one of these three. You go. When you go, what do you do? Or when you're receiving, what do you do? Well, it could be any one of these. In different situations, different ones of these are appropriate to lead with. Okay? So let's begin with listen. 
Whose responsibility is it to listen? So we've got an offended party, an offender. They're together now. Whose responsibility is it to listen? Both. Both. Yeah, that's right. And it can be hard for both, for either one to listen. What are some techniques of good listening? This is an experience group. What are some things that are helpful when you, because listening can be hard, especially in an emotionally charged situation. What are some things to just hold on to in terms of what you do when you listen? Repeat back what you heard the other one say. Repeat back what you heard the other one say. How was that? <laughs> no, this is. <laughs> no, this is critical, and it's amazingly hard. I remember times when Amy, you know, would say something, and I was thinking, okay, I have to repeat back to her what she said. So you're saying that I, I did not want to say it. It's a physical, it took physical courage to get the words out. That's right. So that's a really key one, repeating back what you heard the other person say. Are you saying, did I hear correctly that? And there's two reasons, just we'll get this in a second, two reasons at least. One is, so the other person knows you're listening. And you're not going on to your next point, and your next point, and your next point. That's number one. Number two is, you may have heard wrong. You may say, so I'm hearing this, and they're like, that's not really what I said. And that's not really what I said. What I'm saying is this. And so it's very, very helpful. Diane. Well, kind of along with that, because it is sometimes like we can have a filter where we're, we hear something through a certain filter of what we've already had a preconceived idea of, but like, like, it's mm -hmm, right. totally changed. But the other thing I was going to say is sometimes you have to define the terms because like what terminology, like, okay, so what, what do you mean about, Perfect. like, you want to restore friendship, what, is that, what would that look like to you? Yes. What do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah. Good. So defining the terms, asking them what they mean by something. That they said. I, you know, in terms of that, in terms of like working uh, in big groups with different denominations, different traditions, that's really key because I, I discovered that a lot of the things that I thought Protestants and Catholics disagreed about were really differences in terminology. And, and there was some terminology that Catholics used that would make me cringe. And when I asked, what, what do you mean? I would hear like, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a very interesting experience for me. I've experienced even within one denomination, individualists. I mean, it's, it, the older I get, the more amazed I am that every one of us can see one word. And, and I don't mean that it's all open to discussion. I mean, just what you said. So we bring with us a bunch of images or thoughts that go that have to deal with this concept. And a lot of times, we don't we don't know what the other person really needs. Mm -hmm another technique for listening effective listening is not talking <laughs> it really is it's amazing if you maintain silence what can happen it's really hard to do, especially in our culture. 
It's really hard to do. But just being silent, it's amazing. The other person will eventually feel compelled to start talking. Another thing is really listening and not just thinking about what you can say next. Yes. Sometimes you're speaking with someone and you, you, you just know they're not really hearing you because they're just planning what they're going to Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this book by Brian Cox, who's an Episcopal priest that I met at the TJC2 conference in Dallas, um, he works on a very high level of reconciliation as in Palestinian Jew type reconciliation. But he in this book um, referenced another book that I want to buy called Difficult Conversations. He talks about this listening thing. So there's three points or four points or maybe five that I'm just going to read out um, from this other book, Difficult Conversations, because I thought they were outstanding. So number one, the first goal of a learning conversation is to create the third story. So each party comes in with their story. The first goal is you create a third story that you both agree on. It doesn't belong to either one, but belongs to both of you. The second goal is to create resonance between the parties. So the way I would say that is relationship. You know, if you're engaged in a conversation, you're building up the relationship, you're creating trust. The third goal, I love this one, is it, allow, it allows identity quakes to occur when the parties hear themselves or their motives described in unflattering terms. A fourth goal is to allow the parties to consider the effect of their past actions on each other. And the fifth goal, this is actually maybe surprising to some of you, is it enables the parties to surface antagonism, vent anger and mistrust, so as to move beyond victimhood to volition, to, to be able to act in a willing way. Isn't that good? Yeah, so I want to get this book and put it in our library. We have a whole section in our library that's about reconciliation. All right, we're doing good. Now, oh, well, listen, we haven't hit the scripture yet. We need a reader. Sam, go. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Identity quake. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, let's move on. I, I will just say, yeah, once again, that takes courage. I have had an identity quake before. And it was both deeply disturbing and wonderfully joyful. So, <laughs> All right. Listen, lament. The key question for lament is, what has been lost? That's the key question for lament. This means lament requires memory. Rather than hiding from painful memories, you are choosing to bring them up and look at them directly, face to face. Lament also requires emotion. 
What if you don't feel the emotions? This is my problem. Well, one way is to spend time reflecting on that question, what has been lost? For me, it helps to imagine, for instance, what the relationship might have looked like if the offense had never occurred. Where would we be now as opposed to where we are? And the, the contrast for me awakens some emotion of, oh, you know, that's difficult. What would the marriage have been like without the hostility? What would the church have been like without the divisions? You can also ask Jesus for his feelings about the lost. Jesus is a Jew. Jews are very good at lament. They wrote a whole book on it. It's called Lamentations. <laughs> lament is oftentimes the best action after go. Not listen or not confront, but lament. Why is this? Because it's non-threatening. It actually honors the other person to come to them grieving about the loss in the relationship. As long as you don't do it in a manipulative way. And where repentance is not yet possible, we saw David repent immediately, where it's not yet possible, lamenting together is a huge step forward. It's kind of like the third story. You're not only creating the third story, you're then grieving together about the third story. You can ask, look, can we grieve together before the Lord about this loss in our relationship? That's a powerful question to ask. All right, so we're doing another book here, Reconciling All Things, right? right. John Michael? Right. Hallelujah. Great book. There's a chapter on here that the chapter of the title is The Discipline of Lament. It's worth buying this book just for that chapter. Reconciling All Things. Oh, I have it in here in my notes. Okay, you ready? He talks about unlearning. Lament is a process of unlearning three things. Number one, unlearning speed. The first language of the church in a deeply broken world is not strategy, but prayer. The journey of reconciliation is grounded in a call to see and encounter the rupture of this world so truthfully that we are literally slowed down. Number two, unlearning distance. Closely related to the problem of speed is the problem of distance from suffering. Learning to lament does not happen anywhere but somewhere. Like real estate, lament is about location, location, location. Can, we, can I pause there and say that's one reason that pilgrimage is an important part of the Wittenberg movement. It's, that it's important to go to places where these structures happen. We find to consecration yep. yep. camps, we find to places, you know, sites of terrible, Trent, the Council um, of Trent. The Council of Trent, but also the site where. Um, <coughs> Jews were murdered unjustly, and, and going to these places evokes something. Number three is unlearning innocence. This is hard for me. I'm very positive, as you guys know. Or another way to put that might be naivety. Yep. To be deeply bothered about the way things are is itself a sign of hope. To the extent that we are not shattered, we do not hope. Then he says, three ways to learn and engage the discipline of lament are pilgrimage, relocation. We moved our family into East Austin to live as a minority for about 10 years. 
and public confession. Each of these respective practices offers resources for unlearning speed, distance, and innocence. All right? What do you mean by public confession? Uh, so if, if you're naive about the sin that occurred, so for instance, in the, in the Wittenberg meetings, we have uh, people get up and publicly state the truth about what occurred. Here's what really happened. You know, we excommunicated you. It's a public confession of what happened. So you can't have a distance from that anymore or a naivete about it. Owning. It really did happen, owning it. And, and sometimes, one of the things we witnessed in Wittenberg is sometimes people have irrational um, hostility, anger, judgments, and they don't know where they came from. And sometimes, it, we, we saw this beautifully in Antakya, there was, there was a young man, a young Baptist man, who just got up and started babbling and started weeping in one of the meetings. And he said, I, I don't understand what's happening. And one of the older men, a Jew in the meeting said, you want roots, you need history, you're, you're feeling rootless. And he got up and he embraced them. And then Hans Peter and Verena got up and confessed. He, he, said, he said, your ancestors were Anabaptists in Europe and we Catholics killed you. And all you ever wanted to do was follow the, um, the Beatitudes. And so there, there was great weeping and there was great lament. And Taylor understood something about himself that he didn't understand before. Good. So. Yeah. Yeah. Sandy has also lamented in the context of Wittenberg meetings, haven't you, Sandy? And it was very important. I mean, literal wailing. A wail came forth. There was a lament. All right, we need a reader, another reader, a different reader. Michael. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin. The he here is Joseph. His own mother's son. He asked, is this your youngest brother? The one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. And after he had washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, serve the food. I think that's it. Yeah. So think about this. What has been lost in the relationship of Joseph and Benjamin? I don't think Joseph, I don't think Benjamin was around when Joseph was sent away. He's never seen him. I think he's weeping over the fact that he has a brother who he doesn't know. What has been lost? Very important question in the net. Okay, the last of the three across is repent. Listen, lament, repent. And you'll notice, by the way, we're, we're not being real descriptive in terms of who, who these belong to. The person who's offended or the person who's offended. Because repentance, for example, might be appropriate for both. Repentance involves confessing the truth. So we've talked a little bit about that. Repentance involves apology, and it's important to make apology. But it's more, repentance, as we all know, is more than just words. It's more than just confession and apology. As important and powerful as they are, repentance is also a turning around. It's a turning around. To repent, to turn around. So another reader, Sandy, can you read this? 
her slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So where's the act of repentance? We looked at this story in detail in the last teaching, and it's a very, very rich story. Where's the act of repentance? She went back. She went back and submitted. She was offended, and she was out of there. And the Lord said, no, go back. I will say, for Hagar, repentance was a bodily action. She actually w walked back. Um, and I think bodily actions are helpful for us in the place of repentance. So, for example, just getting the words out, I'm sorry. How many of you try, have tried to say that and found that the words are really hard to say? Like physically to say, I'm sorry, to the person is really difficult. And it takes strength. And like, you have to choke it out. That's a physical action. But while you're involved in this, your body posture is also important. What's your body language? What's your body language towards God? In your repentance towards him. Here's a picture from the Wittenberg meetings that shows some very good body language for repentance. Just down on the ground, sorrow. And in fact, it's interesting, you can't see it because I took this picture, you know, my iPhone panorama. But I was having trouble connecting with the repentance at this point. Um, and so I thought, okay, who, 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 who knows you know, well about repentance. Well, as I said earlier, the Jews are very good at, at lament, repentance. And so I said, I'm going to rend my shirt as an act of repentance. And it actually was tremendously helpful to my heart to take my shirt, which was one of my favorite shirts. I'm still sad about <laughs> that shirt I can't wear anymore. But I literally rent it. I rent three rips in it. And that physical action unlocked something inside of me that was very, very helpful for the for the process of repentance. So Annie, yes. I think you got the end here. Yeah. So um, I, I want to go back a little bit to to lament because sometimes our our hostility, our sin is against our is against God. And what can we give God? And I think lament is one of the huge things that we can give to God. So when we sin against our brother, we, there's damage brother to brother. But it also um, hurts the heart of God. And, and you know, as parents, if, you're, if your children are in conflict, it causes you pain as well. And so to see them reconciled is great, and still there's a, there's a grief that they've caused you. Um, and, and I feel like that's, um, lament is, one of, is an act of repentance where we get in touch with God's feelings. We get in touch with, with what God has lost, what we have cost. Yeah. Um, and and Sandy, could you could you just like in two minutes describe 
um, what happens there in the opera. Or if you don't want to, that's fine. But I really felt like it was it was very significant because you know we, we do this this these trips and prayers of reconciliation. I mean, what difference does it make? And and here I felt like we really had an answer from God. It touched the heart of God. So you don't have to, Sandy, if you don't want to. I would just like to read what I wrote. Just read what you wrote. I don't want to send it. That's fine. It doesn't need to go into detail. Can you hear me, though? Are these your, are these your notes from that moment? No, it's just this little paragraph okay. that they asked me to write. Do you know who Verena is? Do they know who Verena and Hans Peter are? Verena's a PhD in history. In history. She is, she's probably, she's the, the most on, uh, active on the ground leader of Wittenberg in Europe. She's the child of a Nazi, um, brilliant lay woman. Um, yeah. So she was giving a talk. I remember that Verena was finishing the talk on the state of the Roman Catholic world leading up to Luther's Reformation. Verena is Catholic, by the way. And the state of the church was so heartbreaking to me. I was overcome with sadness at the misrepresentation of God by his people. When Verena sat down, my head slumped to my chest in growing grief. The next thing on the agenda was a worship song. The worship leader stood up and began singing, but there was such a palpable sadness in the room. Some stood and joined in, but not with any real joy that I could feel, and some of us simply couldn't do so. Verena was on her face on the floor. I couldn't lift my head from my chest, so weighed down with sadness was I. I buckled over in my chair and began weeping. I remember that the grief seemed mostly about God and those he wanted to know him. But how could they know him or who he really was? Yet he so wanted to be known. The weeping became wailing and the pain very acute and physically heavy. I could have stopped it, I think, with some real effort, but it felt like the wailing needed to wail until the broken heart of heaven was revealed. It was very, very powerful. A place of lament, and I think also a place of repentance where we get in touch with God's heart. So I'm not going to talk about the attitudes which enable repentance, but those which oppose it. Um, and we're funny people because it was very clear in the situation that when our tender, broken hearts, we were closer to God than we were in that moment when we, if we had been all joyful and pressed ahead with worship. But we have this funny fear that if we come to somebody brokenhearted, lamenting, saying, I was wrong, I have caused you, that somehow things aren't going to work out well, that somehow we won't be... Um, um, rejected. And the funny thing is, it, it's so contrary. It, it's, a, it's a lie. What makes soft hearts and God is the thing that makes soft hearts and people. When we are contrite and humble, it softens hearts. Maybe not all of the time, but we're so afraid of it. There's something in us that is terrified of admitting we were wrong. And the sad case is that I see this in my own three-year-old daughter. And, it, and it's heartbreaking. Um, so the other day she was coming through and um, John Patrick saw her take a toy from Corey. And, and just gently said, John said, 
Claire, I give it back. And I said, yes, Claire, I give the toy back. And Claire breaks into tears and said, I didn't do it. I was stretching my arm. You know, and we're not ridiculous. And sometimes we convince ourselves that we were just stretching our arms. It's so sad. Because I didn't want to shame Clara. I was not angry with Clara. Corey was not angry with Clara. All we wanted to do was to give her her toy back. You know, that's all that was. But Clara chose escalation. <laughs> she chose lying and the tears. And oh my goodness, it was, you know, it became a 30 minute meltdown. <laughs> and so we have it in our heads from the time we're born that if we admit our fault, it's going to cause us to lose respect, lose favor, lose faith. I don't know where it comes from, because it's not rational. It's not true. And you know it's not true, but still, it, you have to fight it. So true repentance is an expression of hope, a hope that God can change us, a hope that we can act differently in the future, a hope that a hostile situation can come to an end. Despair does not lead to repentance. Despair never leads to repentance. Despair leads to suicide. Despair leads to ugliness. It's hope that leads to repentance. And so we're talking a lot about, about Wittenberg, and, and um, thankfully, Philip and Sandy got to be here for this example. Um, so there is a lot of repentance. There's a lot of repentance that goes on in all of these meetings. And so, you know, if you're looking for a fun historical tour, I do not recommend you come to Wittenberg. You're going to spend a lot of time crying. <laughs> that's, that's what we do. And, um, and we did that for like three days. And then we got to this last meeting where we talked about all the junk that, that the church had done, all the evil things in our past. But then we had the, this, this expression of bringing something true and beautiful from each, um, each tradition and offering it to the Lord. What, 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 do you have, what does your tradition have that really is beautiful and true? And so we brought them all and we put them in this jar and this hilarity broke out. I mean, these, these are really intellectual PhD um, Germans in their 70s. I mean, these, this is not a light, fluffy bunch of people. These are very stoic, dour people. Oh they terrify me, some of them. Um, but belly laughter broke out, just ridiculous, silly belly laughter. I mean, Thomas said, is this, is this real? Is this going on? It was so much fun. And later, uh, there was a Lutheran pastor, Burkhardt, who spoke to me and said, I know repentance was real because the fruit of repentance is joy. Yeah. And so it is a lie of, from the pit of hell that repentance will make things worse, that admitting you're wrong will make things worse. Admitting you're wrong makes things happy. <laughs> so that's all I have to say. <laughs> Good. Good. All right. Wonderful. How are we doing on time? Um, oh, I'm sorry. If we're not done, I will say one more thing. Go ahead. Okay. This, you can imagine this in a personal setting. It's, it's interesting to me that this works on um, a, a people group, ethnic group, denominational setting as well. Somehow or another, we, we fear that if we admit that, okay, maybe, maybe we had a, a wrong doctrinal belief, perhaps maybe our people really were at fault. Somehow, if we admit yeah, fault, that, that we, somehow we lose our standing with God. And, and it's crazy, but it's true. You know, and, and Cheryl was talking to me about this, it, you know, um, we're talking about, so yeah, Catholics have done a lot of awful things. How can you still be a Catholic if knowing that your church has done a lot of awful things? And 
Well, yeah, her priest said, well, you know, Ameri you know, Americans dropped an atomic bomb on a bunch of, of innocent civilians. I'm not happy about that. Does that make me not American? Does that make God not love me? You know, it's, you can't deny, you can't deny your heritage. And we cannot believe that God is going to reject an entire group, an entire denomination, because they are wrong about something. So anyway, that's, I'm passionate about this. <laughs> yes, Jeff. But they bombed a bunch of innocent people sleeping on a ship. Let's, I mean, everybody, war is a terrible thing. I'm not, I'm not okay. saying, I'm not, I'm not saying that it was, it was a very, very difficult situation. But, you know, if you're Yeah, I'm not saying it was an easy situation. I'm really not. But, but people can be, people can, can carry all sorts of resentments. I mean, there are things that we did about Native, to Native Americans. I didn't do them. I didn't do them. Because still Native Americans will have, have um, a against me. Japan, there was an article yesterday, Japan did a lot of awful things, a lot of terrible things in the war. And, and, and they said, you know, we did. We did a lot of terrible, awful, horrendous things, and we're sorry, but our children shouldn't have to apologize for these things. You know? And so there, there is repentance that goes, people will hold, will hold um, resentment against another people group because they actually have, in fact, been injured by something. Whether or not those things were righteous or not, it doesn't matter. But but God, God's love does not cease. God's love did not cease to the people of Israel, even though they offered their children to them. That's what never ceases for them. God's love will not cease for us even though we're wrong. That's all I'm saying. So yeah, I'm saying that that, that was one example that somebody named, and it, it's a difficult situation. But worth lamenting. Worth lamenting. Yeah, worth lamenting.